So you're coasting along, and then boom, you get sick. Your immune system starts firing on all circuits. You are in a state of disorder. Your body is doing everything it can to get back to stability. And eventually, if you're fortunate, you're healthy, it does. But that stability is somewhere new because now you have more immunity to whatever virus you had. Like literally, your immune system looks different than before it happened. And we have these biological immune systems, but we also have psychological immune systems. And it's the same thing. So the more intense the change is, the longer it takes for our psychological immune system to reorganize in a new way that is often stronger than where we were before. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Stahlberg. I'm actually not joined by my usual partner in crime, Steve Magnus, today. And I'm about to tell you why that's the case. I've got a new book out in the world, Master of Change, How to Excel When Everything is Changing, Including You. We've been talking about this book, we've been working on it, and it is finally here. And as much as Steve wanted to do our usual interview each other on the book, you know, we decided that we wanted to take things to the next level, not just in the writing of this book, but also in the podcast about it. So a couple of episodes ago, episode 182, we had Clay Skipper, profile cover story writer for GQ, on the show to discuss what makes for a world-class interview. And it's one of our most listened to episodes, one of my favorite episodes, one of Steve's favorite episodes too. And Steve called me up and said, hey, you know, I could interview on the book, but why don't we just ask Clay to do it? Let's get Clay an early copy of the book and why doesn't he do the interview? So we called Clay up. Clay said, of course, I'll do the interview. And uh, we turned it over to him. So instead of Steve, my sparring partner today is going to be the one and only Clay Skipper. I have no idea what he's going to ask me. The goal for this conversation is to dive deep into the book, into the process of writing the book, into how the book supports so many of the growth equation principles that y'all have become accustomed to. So with that, our only ask for today is if you've yet to buy the book, please do. It is the number one way to support the growth equation in everything that we do. And we really do believe this is our best work yet. It will help you excel and strive for excellence when everything is changing, including you. You're about to hear more about the book. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Clay, and I'm going to get on the other side of the table. What's up, Brad? Good to see you, Clay. Great to be back um, on the podcast. Also great that not only did I get one early copy of the book. I got two early copies. I got a paperback and a hardcover. And I would highly suggest that everyone listening do the same. You should not buy not just one copy of Brad's book, but you should get two of them. So yes, Master of Change. So where I was going to start with this was these books are often addressing some sort of like problem, right? And I was going to ask sort of, okay, what is the what is the problem you're diagnosing? But it's fairly obvious for the title. It's about change, right? So I think the question I would ask you is not so much what is the problem you're diagnosing, but what happened in your life? What were you seeing in the world that made you think, okay, now is the time to talk about change? Was it a global thing? Was it a personal thing? Was it a mix of both? How did you come to, to that topic 
um, specifically? The answer is yes to all of that. So let's see. I'll start in my own life. I had experienced a whole lot of change in a really compressed period of time. Uh, Within the span of just a few years, I moved across the country, decided to sever all ties with the corporate world to really make the growth equation in book writing my full-time job. I became a parent for the first time. Fast forward a few years, I became a parent for the second time. As longtime listeners will know, I had pretty significant surgery on my leg that ultimately ended my career as an endurance athlete. That had been a pretty big part of my identity. The practice of groundedness came out, did really well, do hard things, even though it wasn't my book. Steve's book came out, did really well. In combination, kind of took what we're doing at the growth equation to the next level. And um, also underwent a really painful estrangement from certain family members. So it was a mix of the good, the bad, the ugly, everything in between. It was just a lot in what felt like a very short period of time. And then all this personal stuff was layered on top of the pandemic, which is this enormous socio-political global change that just about everyone went through. And I distinctly remember I said, I want to write a book on change when I was in our kitchen reading headlines of articles, and every single one was some version of when are things going to get back to normal. And I didn't know why at the time, now I do, but those headlines just struck me as being really wrong in a visceral way. Like they triggered me. I don't love the word triggered, but I was triggered by those headlines. And I was seeing them, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Economist, left, right, down the center, it doesn't matter. Everyone was talking about this as if we should get back to normal. And there was just something about that language that rubbed me the wrong way. And um, I said, you know, I think we're thinking about change wrong. And from there, I dove into the the research and um, and philosophy around change, and tried to build up a new model for change that is hopefully more useful. Yeah, so let's get into that model a little bit. I mean, you have just like the practice of groundedness. You have so many good nuggets in here, and I'm sure it's a little bit like choosing between your children. But like when you when you start thinking about how to take a better, a more adaptive approach to change, a more um, effective route to work with change? What are some of the core tenets that you keep coming back to in the book? The first is just that the model of change is not one where you try to get back to where you started. And so much of the resist change or fight change or try to get back to where we were is based on homeostasis, which my guess is all listeners have heard of this term. And it describes change as a cycle of order, disorder, back to order. And for over 150 years, it's been the prevailing way to think about change in the scientific community. It was first coined in the mid-1800s. And it only in the past couple of years have researchers stepped back and say, you know, this is really like a pretty crappy fit for 99.99% of changes in, in what high-performing, healthy systems do. Whether that's an individual or a species, an organization, it doesn't matter. And instead, species, yes, we want stability, but that stability is always somewhere new. So instead of order, disorder, order, this new model of change, it's called allostasis, describes change as a cycle of order, disorder, reorder. And you can look at the root of the word to see the difference. So homostasis, right, homeostasis, homo means same and stasis means standing. 
So it basically is stability by staying the same. And allo means variable in stasis is standing. And that means stability by variation or stability through change. And whereas homeostasis pits us in confrontation with change, says that change is something that happens to us, that change inherently destabilizes us and we want to get back to stability, allostasis says that we're in conversation with change. Change is just the nature of reality And the way to be stable through change is by changing, at least to some extent. And there is no getting back to normal. And that is why I was so happy to realize that like, so much of our resistance to change is just based on this old mindset that change is something that happens to us that is bad, instead of change is something that we're always participating in, and it's neutral. It's not good or bad, it just is. And while it's true that most living systems, including human beings, don't like disorder or instability, it's also true that we never get back to the same place we were after disorder. If we're going to have stability, it's got to be somewhere new. I like that. The image I'm getting in my head right now is like with allostasis, it's it's sort of like um, if if the listeners can imagine it, a line segment, but it's got little loops on it. Like you're sort of moving in loops. And the, the, the change I'm imagining is the loop. There's a little pause and you come back, but you're a little bit ahead of where you were. As opposed to with homeostasis, just like you're in a circle and you're just coming back to the same spot and you're not really progressing at all. Um, That's right. And yeah. there's a lot of loops. Um, research by the, the writer Bruce Feeler found that the average adult undergoes 35 major life disruptions and changes. Uh, some are good, some are bad. Um, it's it, it doesn't really matter, right? Change has changed. So Getting married or getting a great job or writing a best-selling book will jolt you, as will getting divorced or getting laid off or having a big creative project flop to the nervous system, like stress is stress, right? I mean, there's different varieties, but it's all the same. Um, There's illness, there's injury. I mentioned career, there's personal changes, there's having kids, there's kids leaving the house, there's changes in your climate. There's moving. I mean, when you think about it, it's like, of course, we're constantly somewhere in those cycles. Uh, life is change. Yeah, that was the thir- the 35 major life disruptions. That was a, a crazy stat. Does there, do you know offhand, do you remember, did you see this, if it, how that breaks down by like where in life most of those changes happen? Like I kind of imagine maybe it's front loaded because like the end of your life just is usually a little bit more stable. Um, but I'm curious if, if there was any literature on that. The window that the investigation looked at was adults, so over age 18. Oh, wow. It's a broad one. When you parse it out, I think that the first half tends to be more around career and potentially geographic. And the second half, um, maybe the changes aren't as... Um, I don't want to say noticeable because they are, but it tends to do a lot more of loss. Like there's no way to sugarcoat it. So the loss of friends, the loss of loved ones, uh, the loss of skills and capabilities, the loss of the ability to use your body in a way that you'd once used it. Um, So maybe one way to think of it is the front end of life, many of the changes are um, more like building and, and, and towards the back half you're taking away. But taking away isn't always bad either, right? Like you could retire and you could simplify. Um, but no, it's a pretty a pretty kind of uh, the, the average every 18 months or so, that seems to hold true over the course of one's life. And 
you mentioned a lot of the changes you went through and, and you just listed a lot of like very sort of common changes. Um, a lot of those changes are things you have to, you can't, you're forced to change, right? Like if you get laid off, if you suffer an injury, um, if you move across the country, but because change is hard, I think there are so many types of changes that we avoid, right? Like maybe, maybe getting out of a relationship we shouldn't be in or getting out of a job we are sort of stuck in. I'm curious from the research you've done in the book and just anecdotally from coaching clients you've worked with and even just personally, like what are the most sort of pernicious changes that people put off or resist? Because it is hard to make that sort of final step and admit to yourself that you need to change long after the external world has probably told you you need to make that change. Ooh, this is good. I think they fall into three big buckets and you hit on two of the three. So the first is uh, career. So being in a job that is just stale or being in an organization where the values don't align with yours, uh, being in a role that doesn't make any sense for you. The second is people. Um, So this can go in both ways. This can be you need to leave relationships behind. This can be intimate relationships, but it can also be friendships or even other family members. Or the opposite direction, which is you need to accelerate the relationship, you know, shit or get off the pot, like get engaged, (laughs) get married. Um, Which happened a lot during the pandemic, right? Well, that happened to a lot of people. It's like a stress tester. Exactly. Um, Decide decide to have a kid or not. Uh, So again, it's not it's not either direction. It's both. And then the third area that you didn't mention is around behavior change related to health, Um, body composition, exercise habits, uh, alcohol intake, the way that people eat. So those are the three areas of change that that people do kind of have like a gut, like I know I should do this or I should focus here, but I don't want to because it's hard and scary. Yeah, I like that. Three big buckets. That's um, it's a nice, clean way to think about it. So I think using that, especially going off the last bucket you talked about, like, again, people should read this book because there's so many good nuggets in here. It would be impossible to cover them all. And instead of just having you walk us through them, I think one way that could be interesting to get at some of them is I'd be curious for you to take a change you had in your life. The one I jotted down, I'm a little, um, I'm interested in this because I I just love sort of talking about fitness and whatnot, but the the transition from uh, being a triathlete and being a big runner to more weightlifting, but you could pick a different one. I'm just curious, one, like a big change in your life you had and how you made that change and some of the frameworks you that you have in the book that you use to, to um, work with it as opposed to continue to, to fight it. Mm. So, yeah, we can, we can do that one. And I think that that's a good one um, because for people that don't know the whole background, uh, in short, I grew up a power sport athlete. I was a pretty good football player, not good enough to play big school college football. So my career ended at the end of high school. Got the running, endurance sports, triathlon, marathon bug. And um, as I got better, I had more and more pain in my calf. And ultimately, uh, it unearthed a largely genetic condition called chronic exertional compartment syndrome, where basically... That rolls off the tongue. Right, my calf just doesn't let me do the things that I want to do, and um, even with a surgical repair, 
there was no coming back to trying to compete at the level that I had gotten myself to in, in endurance sports, um, which was really hard because it had become a huge part of my identity, especially because I first got into endurance sports when my undergraduate girlfriend broke my heart. Like it was the thing that I poured myself into to numb the pain and to tell myself that I was okay. So it was a big part of my like sense of identity and insecurity. So what did I do to, to get through that shift? I think there are two very related things. The first is somewhat cliche, but I think it's true, which is when the pain of staying in a relationship is more than the pain of leaving it, that's when it's time to go. And for me, the pain of trying to stay a committed endurance athlete became greater than the thought of not doing it. And that's physical pain in my leg, but it's also psychological pain of every single run. Like, how far am I going to make it before it feels like I'm having a heart attack in my calf? Or how many miles a week am I going to be able to run without getting a stress fracture in my heel because there's no blood supply to my heel? I mean, it got pretty gnarly. And in hindsight, it's like, of course you should stop. But when you're in it, you're like, you're in it. And this gets to my second point, which is a term or a concept, I should say, that is, uh, comes from the behavioral scientist Dan Gilbert at Harvard. And he calls it the inescapability trigger. And what he says is that once you fully accept that you kind of hit rock bottom, that there is no problem solving or fixing the current situation, there's no tweaking at the margins that you can do, then you can change. Because you can devote all that mental and physical energy that you were using to try to get through in the old to say, like, screw it. The old is not going to work. It's inescapable that it's not going to work. And therefore, instead of halfway imagining what something else might look like, I have no choice but to imagine what something else might look like. And for me, it was um, after my surgery and my fasciotomy, I started to rehab and I found that I could hike, I could do weight training and all that felt great, but I just couldn't run. And I remember thinking like, why? I'm not a professional athlete. This is causing me great stress to even try to do it. Like, why don't I just stop? And I'm going to just stop, and that's okay. And I went through like a three- to four-week period where I would see runners and stuff, and I'd look at them, and I'd say, man, like, if I'm not a runner, then what am I? I'd get like little, um, very minor, but enough to perceive, like little shots of anxiety in my stomach, like, oh, I'm no longer these, you know, these people. Uh, but after three to four weeks, those went away. And um, now it's it's totally fine that I don't do endurance sports. And I threw myself into strength training. So like I did get to something new. Um, and there was a reorder of, say, in my athletic pursuit. It's just at a very different place than where I started. And you could argue it's back where I initially started in high school, but it's a very different place than it had been for um, for the last 10 years. And then what were there other sort of, I mean, you had that initial feeling of like, oh, if I'm not a runner anymore, what am I? What were some other difficulties that cropped up as you went further into making that change? Or did it get easier pretty quickly? For me, I think it got easier pretty quickly. But in many ways, it's because like it wasn't my job. I'm not a pro athlete. Mm-hmm. It was a big part of my identity, but it was never the whole thing. You know, I'm a book writer. I'm a parent. I think if it would have been earlier on in my life, it would have been much harder. Um, being a beginner again was tough. So going from 
decent level of competency at endurance sports to completely new again at strength training. But even that for me wasn't that hard because genetically I'm just so much like better at strength training. Um, so for me, yeah, it was really like the, the kind of fighting it and the needing that inescapability trigger or the, the rock bottom of sorts to just say like, this is, this is just causing me distressed and angst and why should I keep doing this? Mm-hmm. And the reason was, well, because I want to qualify for Kona or I want to go sub three in the marathon or so many of my friends are through the running community or the number one source of readership of my books are runners. And if I'm not a part of this, then what does that mean? And a lot of that was just stuff that I built up in my head. I mean, no one cares about my race results other than me. No one cares that I don't run. They care about how good my books are. Um, so it was like this identity stickiness, though, that I had to be like, well, if I'm not a runner, then, then what can I be? But I can be an athlete, and that can take many shapes, sizes, and forms. And I'm still a huge fan of the sport. I just don't do it because my body is at a point where I can't do it. Yeah, that, that, uh, the talk of identity is reminding me of this um, the Buddhist term that you bring up in your book called, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it correctly, anatta, it's A-N-A-T-T-A. But this idea of non-self and actually like they talk about how certain in the same way that like you'd hear a siren and you wouldn't identify with the siren, you can actually learn to like unhook your identity from certain thoughts. Um, but it's all, but this idea of unhooking your identity, not just from thoughts, but also from like what you've done in the world that you've tied it to, I think is really interesting and applies really well here. Um, cause you do have to go through so many different identities through life. Yeah. And that's where the subtitle of the book comes from, you know, how to excel when everything is changing, including you. Mm-hmm. And you could even make it more broad, which is like how to think about you when everything is changing, including mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that we're here because this was the most interesting intellectually. And I think at the same time, the most pragmatic part of the book for me when I was researching and writing it um, was this notion of having a sense of self and an identity that is both very strong and stable and yet always changing at the same time. Mm. And this seems like total opposites, but back to allostasis, like the way to have a super strong sense of self and identity is to realize that it's always going to be changing at the same time. Mm. Uh, I talk about Eric Fromm's concept in the book of to have or to be. Love that framing, yeah. And when you have something, like you're in an I own this relationship, so like I own the fact that I run, I own my athletic performance, um, I have a certain marathon time. I have a certain skill set. And Fromm says that when you have that sort of relationship with things, you're really fragile because those things can be taken away at any given time. And when they are, it's super disorienting. Whereas if you can have more of a being relationship, so instead of I have this skill, like I am an athlete, I enjoy pushing my body, that becomes a lot more robust because you can do it in more flexible ways. So that, I think that's like a really important construct to have. And then another one that I had done by accident that I think was really helpful and why I said it would have been harder earlier on in my life is just this notion of uh, what researchers call self-complexity. In layperson's terms, it's really just diversifying your sense of identity. Hmm. And um, identity is like a house. And, you know, you want to have different rooms in your house because if you only have one room, if you only have the runner room, 
Well, then something like this comes up and your whole house is, you know, the ground is shaking. It's a major earthquake. Whereas if you've got the runner room, but you've also got the writer room and the community member room, and even if you can redefine the runner room as the athlete room, you've got the parent room, you've got the I love German shepherds room. Well, then when you have a tumultuous time in one area of your life or one room, you can seek refuge in the other rooms while you go through the cycle of order, disorder, reorder in in the room that is constantly changing. And again, this was by no means intentional. I wish I could say it was. Uh, Maybe just kind of fortuitous that I I shed running as an activity and as a maybe too tight part of my identity at the same time that my writing career was taking off, that I was having my first child, that I was moving to a new place. So on the one hand, you could say, whoa, that's like part of a lot of change. And that's scary, which is true. But on the other hand, I was able to focus more on those other areas while the dust shook out as I went through that month transition of realizing like, huh, I'm not a runner anymore and that's okay. The room metaphor is interesting. I I don't know if I, you know, there's this idea I want to sort of get at here. Um, And we can figure out if it's a, if it's a fruitful path to go down or not. But when we're talking about focusing on like having a house with multiple rooms, where my mind goes is, is I agree with that wholeheartedly, but I have no ambition necessarily to be like, the best in the world at anything. And like MJ had one really good room at the expense of all his other rooms. Now, I don't think any of us would argue that like MJ was the necessarily a paragon of work-life balance or health or, oh, health, yes, maybe. But like, so I guess the question I'm always getting at is if you really want to get to like, and I know you can be great and have mastery and you don't have to be completely maybe sociopathic about it. I mean, Nikola Djokic is a, is a good, is a sort of a good counter example. He seems like he has a balanced life, but I'm just curious where you shake out on that of like, it is great to have a bunch of rooms, but I wonder if having a bunch of good rooms comes at the expense of having one like exceptional room. It depends. And first I want to um, clean up some really important nuance here that just because you have four rooms doesn't mean that you need to spend the same amount of time in each of those rooms. So you can have the basketball room, the spouse room, the room that loves reading, and I don't know, name another room that a great basketball player might have. I guess in Jokic's case, like he rides horses, right? So the horse riding room, let's say. And I think that it's okay, and I think greatness requires you spend a whole lot of time in your primary room, the room that you're trying to be great in. I just don't think you should leave any of the others completely behind because then when a shift does happen, you want to be able to go into those others um, just to maintain some stability in, in, in who you are. And I also think that the story of the single-minded, obsessed hero gets told the most. Um, and I think part of it is because it's often a disaster and humans like disasters. And MJ is the greatest basketball player to ever live, maybe tied with LeBron. I mean, that's debatable, but certainly if not number one, then tied for number one. Some youngins might say number two. And no one can take that away from him, but I think part of the reason that The Last Dance had all this appeal is because MJ is kind of like, you know, he's not the happiest person. And it's fascinating to me that there wasn't a documentary on Tim Duncan, who 
was like a much more um, not balanced because when Tim Duncan was winning his five championships, he was all in on basketball, but he he maintained other parts of his identity and other parts of his life. And the reason you can't make a documentary is because there's not enough material because Tim Duncan was like doing other things while doing that. So I think there's a mix of a couple of things, which is one, the I want to clear up that just because you have multiple rooms doesn't mean you're spending equal time in them. I just think it's important not to completely shut any doors. Number two, there's selection bias in the stories that get told. And then number three, I think some of it is temperament driven. So there are certain people, and it's a very small proportion of people, that are really driven by pressure and fear. And the reason I say fear is because if you completely identify with your pursuit, then it's kind of scary because if you mess it up, it's like your whole self discombobulates, right? For those small percentage of people that need that pressure, and MJ is definitely one, like he had to create that pressure when it wasn't there, right? Like once he got so good, it it was clear, like he he had the room and he was in it and that room was going to be his forever, you know, the best basketball player ever. He had to come up with new things like, you know, fake attacks on himself so that he could, he could thrive. So he was wired that way. Um, But a lot of people don't perform well when they're carrying a million pounds of pressure and they actually perform much better knowing that win or loss, they're going to be able to go on with their lives and it's going to hurt if they lose, but they'll still be able to go on with their lives. And that allows them to go out there and and really play with nothing to lose. Whereas someone like MJ plays with everything to lose because if he loses, then it's a reflection on everything in his life. I think it's really nuanced. I, I do think that like, you know, could MJ have been a world-class chef at the same time? Of course not. But could he have benefited from, like, having other areas in his life? And in a way, he did, though, Clay. Like, he was big into poker. I mean, they were just all so wound up in, like, competition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's really interesting. I This, uh, this conversation always reminds me of a great – there's a great Bill Simmons tweet one time about Shaq where he was basically making the point that, like, Shaq he was like Shaq is like the smartest guy at school who goes to college and instead of like going to class all the time and doing all his homework he like does enough to get like a three seven but he still has a really good time and like makes a lot of new friends and has a lot of new experiences and his point was like Shaq could have been the greatest basketball player of all time but like he just settled to be one of the top 20 players of all time and had like a good time doing it but I think the flip side of that, and we, we can never know, these are these are the most fun counterfactuals that Bill Simmons can, you know, live yeah. on and talk about with the best of them, is maybe Shaq was a top twenty player because of that. And maybe if he wouldn't yeah. have taken on all the stress of just basketball, he wouldn't have been good at all. He would have melted under that. Yeah. I mean, Giannis is another example of someone that seems to like have some perspective. And MJ had no perspective when it came to basketball. Giannis has perspective. And some could say, like, well, maybe that's why Giannis, like Shaq, like still can't figure out his free throw shooting or his mid-range jump shot when it matters most. But others could say that it's the reason that Giannis doesn't melt down after a tough loss. Um, So I think that these things cut both ways. And I I really think it's a matter of knowing yourself. Um, I don't want to give away too much from the book, but the story in the book I tell to really elaborate this point is Niels Vanderpool, who's the Mm -hmm. greatest speed skater to ever Mm -hmm. live, current world champion, world record holder, Uh, double gold medal in the 5K and the 10K at the Olympics. And Vanderpool is one of these guys that was clearly not doing well with the weight of his identity on his shoulders. So 
Up until the 2022 games, Vanderpool's entire sense of identity and self and source of meaning in life was connected to being a speed skater. And he realized that it was a lot of fear that he was skating with, and, and he just wasn't performing at his best. So in the buildup to the 2022 games, Vanderpool basically said, screw this, I'm going to take a normal weekend. I'm going to train a shit ton during the week, like 40 hours, but I'm going to do it in five days. And then on the weekend, I'm going to go get pizza and beers and go bowling with my friends. You know, my friends that are in finance and accounting, like they go out on the weekends and they have fun. They go on hikes. I'm going to do that. And it's pretty crazy for an Olympic caliber athlete to just be like, yeah, you know, Saturday and Sunday are normal days. Uh, And Vanderpool did that. And he said that he developed all these sources of meaning outside of sport. And the quote that he uses is that allowed me to be in sport without fear. And I'm certain he's talking about fear of like loss of identity. And he skated the best that anyone on the planet has ever skated. But it gets back to this nuanced point about it's not like he spent equal time in the rooms, right? Like he still trained for 40 hours a week, massive loads. He trained like a world-class speed skater, but on the weekends, he wasn't obsessing about speed skating. Mm -hmm. He wasn't just reading the history of speed skating and watching film of other speed skaters or getting cupping on his leg or sitting in Norma Tech boots because if he told himself, if I go on a hike, it's going to mess up my recovery – He said, you know what, some of that might be true, but I'm willing to take the physical cost of not recovering perfectly to be a normal human being. I know that two beers and pizza isn't exactly what I need, but maybe it is exactly what I need because it allows me to take a deep breath. Um, Will they make a documentary on him? I don't know, but people that follow speed skating, Niels Vanderpool is every bit as good as Michael Jordan. Yeah, it's like, um, I don't know why I'm having a lot of imagery today. I promise I didn't take any psychedelic mushrooms before this conversation, but I'm just imagining like a, like a, you need like a pressure valve. You need a pressure release, right? Like if you just are so singularly focused, you're like a tea kettle that's going to explode instead of like allowing some steam out of the top, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm by no means, you know, approaching world-class like a Niels Vanderpool, but putting a book out into the world is kind yeah. of like an Olympics or a world championship because, you know, maybe you do it more than once every four years. And a huge part of getting through this is training hard at the gym. Yeah. Because, like, it just it gives my brain something else to compete at and to think about. Uh, and without that, yeah, I'd have, like, two more hours a day to focus on what I need to do for book launch. And you could argue that I could really use those two hours to help the book. But... I don't think it would help the book because I think I would be way too wrapped up in it. So having this other area of my life that I can succeed or fail in is really helpful. Yeah. To come back to the inescapability trigger, one question that brought up for me is it made me wonder if we have to hit that rock bottom before we change. So like the book gives so many great tools for getting better at going through change. Um, Is there an argument, do you think there's an argument to be made for getting better at anticipating change and allowing it to happen more quickly? Or is is it a case where we have to hit that inescapability trigger and it's not, like we can't make the change before it's time for the change to be made? No, I think that we can. And I think that um, it's all relative, right? So initially you asked for like really thorny changes. Um, Rock bottom is going to look different for different people too. So some people like rock bottom is, you know, um, at worst, like I'm thinking of mental illness, it's like a suicide attempt. Mm -hmm. But for other people, rock bottom is they can't be present for their kid 
or rock bottom is they start getting a dreading feeling in their gut every time they walk into their corporate office. Or rock bottom is um, they're they're fearful that their longtime girlfriend might actually leave them because they're you know they won't ask the question or whatever. Although that's probably not such a healthy relationship, they should talk about it. But you get what I'm saying. Um, so I think some of it is like a flexible definition of of what I mean by rock bottom. And then I also think that like maybe what you're saying is can we go from you know good to great, or can we intellectually realize we need to make a change and then just kind of hop on the bandwagon without suffering? And I think the answer is yes. I think that there will always be, though, a period of discomfort between X and Y. And that's like the order, disorder, reorder. So I think if we expect that there's going to be a disorder period, then we won't freak out when it happens. And so much of why people struggle to change is because they face disorder, but they didn't expect it. So then they just try to immediately get back to like it was. Instead of saying, hey, this is part of the process. It's normal that I'm going to feel disoriented for a couple of days, a couple of weeks. The bigger the change, the more. Maybe a couple of months, maybe a couple of years. But just knowing that like, that is completely normal. Um, I also didn't take psychedelics, but it's like a puzzle. You know, You have a puzzle that's put together one way, and then you decide that actually you want it to be another way. And you can envision what the other way looks like, and you're really stoked about it. But maybe you forget that in order to get it the other way, you have to take it all apart and there's going to be pieces all over the freaking table. And that is a really uncomfortable feeling. But you can't get to the new arrangement without those pieces scattering all over. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Brings to mind uh, Mark Epstein's book, Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart. And maybe, you know, that's part of the imagery, I think. Definitely. Or I feel like, I feel like maybe it's from groundedness. I'm not sure, but I feel like uh, the idea of you ascend one peak and you get to the top and you realize you got to go back down to get up to the second peak, which is even taller. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's yeah. a million beautiful metaphors yeah. for yeah. this, but like you, you can't, you can't reorder without the disorder. Yeah. And I think that um, part of what I wanted to do in this book is, is change the expectation that, yeah, like there is a messy period. I mean, there are things you can do in that period yeah. to ease it and to help get through, but you're always going to go through that. Yeah. I mean, it's like um, a very, very well-studied reductionist example is like the immune system, you know? So you're coasting along, healthy clay, stable at X, and then boom, you get sick. And your immune system starts firing on all circuits. And maybe you have a fever, uh, mm-hmm. maybe your white blood cell count goes up, you feel fatigued, you feel sore, and you are in a state of disorder. And your body is doing everything it can to get back to stability. And eventually, if you're fortunate, you're healthy, it does. But that stability is somewhere new because now you have more immunity to whatever virus you had. Like literally, your immune system looks different than before it happened. And we have these biological immune systems, but we also have psychological immune systems. And it's the same thing. So the more intense the change is, the longer it takes for our psychological immune system to reorganize in a new way that is often stronger than where we were before. Wow. I'm going to choose to take that and use it as a lens to look at all the chaos in the world and just say, right now we are having a fever and we are going to come out on the other side much stronger and better than we are right now. I mean, I hope so. And, and, yeah. and yet, you know, I looked across history and the times that we're living through are extraordinary um, for us, but they're, like pandemics have always been a thing. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating is just about every time there's been a major pandemic, 
it has been associated with the rise of a demagogue or authoritarian leader in wild conspiracy theories. Like that's not new. That happens with every pandemic. Um, before it was politics, it was like blame the Jews or blame the Chaldeans. But there's always like a, 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 a you know a demagogue that comes and says, "All you people that are scared of the change, you know." And now it's like it's the experts' fault or the elites' fault, whatever it may be. So that's not new. Uh, AI, it's crazy, but the internet was crazy. The car was crazy. The steam engine was crazy. Um, agriculture was crazy. The printing press was crazy. Fire was crazy. So, like, you know, these are these are just changes that happen. And then climate change, I think what what really hurts about that is it's one that we can do something about and we can get from disorder to reorder with less pain if we just choose to. So it's not a matter of there's nothing we can do. In many ways, if there was nothing we could do, it'd be easier. But I think what hurts so much is, like, it's a failure not of technology, it's a failure of will. And... I'm not saying that we shouldn't keep trying and pay attention, but the climate has changed over and over and over again. So yes, things are crazy. And yes, you know, our immune system is working overboard and, and hopefully we'll get to some sort of new stability. But we also got to learn how to be stable throughout all this because uh, you look across history and none of this is that radical or new. Yeah, that's good. That's a good perspective to have. Um what is a like something, a useful tool that you found in the in the research for this book or that's in the book, but you find very difficult to implement or it's something you have to constantly remind yourself of. And how do you sort of work through that? Cause I think one thing, like there's so much good stuff in, in your books. And then I'm always, I'm interested in the application, right? Like how do we actually apply it? Yeah. Um, so something that is, is challenging for me. I think there's two things. One is this notion of voluntary simplicity. I like that a lot, yeah. So the basic thesis here is that when you are going through something that is complex and chaotic or when there's disorder in one period of your life or in one area of your life or in your environment around you, the more that you can simplify everywhere else, the better, because then you have additional resources to deal with the chaos and the complexity. So... You know, you know it's going to be a crazy time in your career or in your relationship or you're going to have your first kid or you know that the election cycle is coming up and it's going to drive you nuts. So it's a really good time in other areas of your life to say, how can I make the other stuff as simple as possible so that I don't introduce any complexity that need not be there? And I've gotten better at this. Uh, moving to Western North Carolina from a big city helped. But sometimes I do think like, I just chase growth because I really like growth, but with growth comes increased complexity. And sometimes I'm like, man, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side, but if I have to add, do I really need to add? Or like, could I actually be taking away to, to simplify in certain areas of my life? And so that I do have more resources to go confront the big changes um, with as much physical and psychic energy as is needed. So that's one. And then the other is something that I think everyone struggles with, which is just updating expectations to match reality when there's a change. Um, The brain's a prediction machine. We're constantly making sense of the world based on how we expect it to turn out. Change is, by definition, a shift of reality that we weren't expecting. Um, So when that happens, how can I waste as little time as possible 
holding on to old expectations and instead just release from those and, and be in reality. Yeah, those are two good ones. The voluntary simplicity one is is great, I think. Like just the idea, it's just it's one of those like really simple counterintuitive ideas of like you have a problem and you're like, what more can I do? That's actually like, maybe you should be doing less. Maybe right. and I, this, I just love in, that. In, in, in like the riff on the book is is mine and is kind of like born out of the the philosophy of change I've put together in this, but it's really evidence-based. Um, it's the work of a researcher named Lighty Klotz and his colleagues. And they did these fascinating experiments where they presented participants with all kinds of puzzles. And they basically said, like, solve the puzzle. From building Legos to navigating mazes to coming up with the perfect schedule for a vacation to building a company. And everybody tried to get to the solution by adding. Mm. They did it when it was neutral. So when addition or subtraction would get you a same outcome, everybody added. And even when the problems were rigged so that by far the way to get to the best solution was by subtracting, the vast, vast, vast majority of participants couldn't see it and they kept trying to add. So there's like this innate wanting to add that we have. So it takes like a lot of overriding to realize that, hey, the best way to solve a problem isn't always to add, it's often to take away. And then I took that research and I said, well, during times of change, when people are feeling a little frantic or frenetic, well, the thing to do isn't to try to add. It's always to try to take away, to try to simplify, simplify, simplify as much as possible. Mm. And um, the meditation teacher, John Kabat-Zinn, was the first person I heard use the frame voluntary simplicity. So in my brain, I kind of married Lady Klotz's research with John Kabat-Zinn's voluntary simplicity and said, hey, yeah, like we should try to simplify amidst complexity. At least we should consider it. Mm. Yeah. That idea of always adding, 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 adding um, makes me think of progress, right? And like, especially in our culture, we're obsessed with linear progress. And I think you and I are both guys who are thinking about how we can achieve more and do more. I'm curious how this, this like, and I'm sure a lot of people listen to the podcast the same way. So I'm curious how all this thinking about change affected the like did it affect the way you think about time and i know that sounds like a crazy question a question between two guys who are not on psychedelic mushrooms but like it's Catherine may's book wintering she has this great thing where she talks about how we all think of time as being just linear just it's all about progress but if you think of it in terms of seasons it's actually cyclical and in the same way that the earth needs seasons we need seasons so you follow a summer with a fall and then a winter and then you spring again and this idea of change, I would, could imagine, could make you think similarly in terms of if you're going through change, it's like that when we talked about the spirals earlier, like that's a period where you're not going to be progressing. So I'm just curious how it, how this, all this thought about change intersected with like how you think about time and progress. Ooh, great question. Yeah, I think that it, I would argue that you are progressing. It just, you go through a period of disorder or like when the puzzle pieces are in disarray. And even though it doesn't feel like progress, you're still making progress. Interesting. Okay. So that's one. And then the other is, I think that it gets back to this diversifying your sense of self. So if you're someone that's like really contingent on progress to be good and happy, I think you have two options and they're not mutually exclusive. It's probably best to pursue them both at the same time. The first is therapy. And the second is to make sure that you have multiple rooms in your house so that mm. when you stall out in one, you can lean on another for psychic energy. 
something that I often do with um, the clients that I coach who are founders of new companies, where there's just so much chaos and everyone's doing everything. And you know, maybe you got like one to five million in seed funding. There's not a lot of runway. You're hiring a team. You're trying to do product market fit. And it can just feel like insanity. I always have them pick some sort of other goal that is very simple. So I had a client, Sarah, who's like, I want to be able to do 20 push-ups. Great. So while you're building this awesome company, every morning spend like 15 minutes working towards that very simple quantifiable goal. I have another client who's the CIO of a law firm in charge of adopting artificial intelligence for this big law firm. I make sure that he's still doing his woodwork. And there's nothing special about push-ups or woodwork, but knowing that they're going to go through massive disorder cycles in their other worlds where they're going to feel like they're stalling out, it's really important for them to have a sense that they're making progress in something. So let's give them something else that they can get some wins at. That's great. I love that. It reminds me of that idea that some people have of like, on your to-do list, put something you're going to get done. Like make oatmeal, you know, brush yeah, your teeth. Yeah, like if, <laughs> if you need some wins in your life, then at least give yourself, especially if you know that there's going to be an area of your life where it, it's going to be slower. It, you're, you might have to go through a period where progress does, at least uh, perceivable progress stalls. Well, then if you know that you're contingent on some wins, then give yourself other areas of your life where you can make some wins. Yeah. Um, you know, plant some marigolds like super hardy flowers that tend to do pretty well. Watch them grow. Like if you need that psychic fix of building something, make sure that you're getting it. It doesn't have to be the main thing. That's great. In the book, you talk about how change is a, it's a matter of surrender, right? And I'm thinking on a spectrum from control on one end of the spectrum to surrender on the other. And the book gives so many great tools for dealing with change and working with change. And I can imagine that being armed with a great toolbox could push you more towards the like control side of the spectrum, right? I'm going to control the change. Um, I'm definitely projecting a bit because that's how I am. I know, I know you're probably a similar type of guy. So I'm curious, as you learned all these things and worked through your own changes, and I'm sure put these tools to the test, like how did you figure out that dance of surrendering, using the tools, but also allowing yourself to surrender and not trying to control the change, which is sort of antithetical to to moving with the change. I mean, I haven't figured this out. I think it's a perennial figuring out. It's a practice. Yeah, it's a practice. Um, And it's a hard one. I don't think there's an answer. I think the answer is wrestling with this tension that is true for everything in life which is on the one extreme, acceptance or surrender, as you put it, as I put it in the book. And on the other extreme is agency and problem solving. And it's almost never one or the other. It's always both. And I think it's just this dance. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you're walking that, that tightrope or, or spectrum between those two. And it's like, where are you and where should you be? And I think as long as you can live that question do I need to surrender more or do I need to exert control more? Then I think that like that's about as good as you can get. I think so many people just kind of go on autopilot. And a lot of type A pushers default to over-controlling, but there are also people that default to like despair and just overwhelm. And some of it is also like knowing what your default is and making sure that you're respecting the other end of the spectrum appropriately. Um, 
Because, yeah, like there is so much that you can do that at best is the illusion of control and it's harmless, but at worst, like you actually get in your own way. I mean, bringing it back to sport, I'm thinking of athletes that just quote unquote over recover. Mm. So, like, you know, they need to be in their Normatec boots for a half an hour. I mean, they need to be on this certain diet and they need to track their glucose on a continuous glucose monitor and they need to measure every bit of their sleep. And it's like, man, you know, in the words of great triathlon coach Matt Dixon, if recovery becomes work, then it's no longer recovery, it's stress. And I think that's a really good example of over-controlling a process, i.e. like the adaptation to exercise process, when what you really need to know is just like let go. You've done your work, don't even think about it. You know, an exercise physiologist would say stressing about a workout raises cortisol, which hurts your recovery. The best thing you can do after a workout is leave the workout behind and get on with the next thing in your life. Whereas there's an entire industry that's been created about trying to control that adaptation period. And it's not to say that any of those things in isolation are bad. It's going to depend on the person and their temperament. But um, yeah, I mean, there's a reason that endurance athletes tend to be like over controllers because you can measure everything. But when you're measuring recovery, are you really recovering? Yeah, that's a great, that Matt Dixon quote's great. I hadn't heard that. Um, yeah, I remember a yoga teacher once at the end of like, the at the end of our 90-minute hot yoga or whatever, she, we were in final Shavasana and she was just like, your body has done all the work. Now this is where like it gets integrated. You just lay here and literally do nothing. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting way to to frame that, a similar yeah. sort of way. And that's true in, in, in physical adaptation, that's true. But like what she didn't say was, so make sure that your glucose is exactly where it should exactly. be. Exactly, yeah. Wear these boots that are going to you know flush out the inflammation from your legs. Uh, take these 19 supplements at the exact right time. Uh, make sure that you're spending money on these sheets that are going to enhance your sleep. And by the way, like track every minute of it in a journal. Well, then you're no longer in the Shavasana pose. You're running around like a crazy person, quote unquote, recovering. Um, so I think when it comes to change, and that's like one example, right? Physical mm-hmm. disruption and recovery. But I think when it comes to any change, it's figuring out like, where are you doing the equivalent of kind of chasing your own tail when it would be better to just let go and let the process play versus what's really important that you can control and you can focus on. Mm-hmm. So another example is when we had our first child, we did a lot of, for a few months, like running around trying to kind of like fix sleep. And then we realized that we were just chasing our own tail and making ourselves more miserable. And we just needed to surrender to the fact that we weren't going to sleep. He didn't think goodness. He didn't have a biological or behavioral problem. He was just a baby that on the spectrum of babies was on the far left of the bell curve in terms of sleepers, like eight standard deviations from normal. And we could run around like crazy trying to fix it. Or we could just say, he's too little to sleep train. So we're just going to have to get through this and just completely surrender. And I'll tell you what, once we did that, life got so much easier. Because it, yes, like not sleeping sucks, but you know what sucks more than not sleeping? Not sleeping and stressing about trying to fix the fact that you're not sleeping. Reminds me of the voluntary simplicity thing, right? Like do less, you know? Uh, right. What was the most uh, surprising or counterintuitive finding uh, that popped up in your research? All right, this is a really good question. I haven't been asked this before. Um, I don't know if I would necessarily say the most surprising, but how about the most like interesting or perhaps the most nuanced? So it comes from some research by a psychologist 
named Mark Siri. And in short, he studied how people recover from capital T trauma changes. So unexpected, negative, and very significant changes to people's lives. Massive car accident, loss of physical function, that sort of stuff. And what he found was that the first three months of most people's recoveries look about the same, and it is down. Depression, apathy, anxiety, despair. At the three-month mark, people that have the best chance of experiencing post-traumatic growth, so moving forward, moving to reorder and making meaning out of their experience, it's only then that the trend line starts to inch up. But for everyone, whether you end up with post-traumatic stress disorder or you end up with post-traumatic growth, there's a three-month period where everyone looks like they're heading towards PTSD. Mm. And how I interpret that is that after massive negative changes that you do not want, that are inevitable for all of us, by the way, loss of a loved one, terrible health prognosis, the stuff that we don't like to think about, trying to contrive or force meaning or any kind of positive outcome on those experiences just backfires. And if we are going to have meaning or positivity or growth, it has to come on its own time and it has to come on the other side of those experiences. But by trying to force it, we can actually get ourselves stuck there. Because what ends up happening is we take a negative, which is something shitty happened, and we turn it into a double negative, which is something shitty happened, and I can't even think of three things to be grateful for. Or something shitty happened, and I can't even bring a growth mindset to this. But sometimes things in life just suck. And what's fascinating is that, back to Dan Gilbert, who's done a lot of fascinating research on on change in general, is that people are really bad at forecasting how they're going to feel in the future. So just because you feel despair now or you feel like things are never going to get better now doesn't mean that you'll feel the same way in six months. And the research in post-traumatic growth shows the exact same thing. But that's very different than self-help bullshit, which is like, oh, you got to make meaning out of everything. No, you don't. Don't get me wrong. I don't think it's good to be negative. There's benefits to being optimistic. Maybe you make meaning out of 96% of the stuff that happens. But there are certain things in your life that just suck. And it's okay to not try to force meaning or growth on them. And the great paradox is by not forcing meaning or growth on them, you're actually doing the most mature thing, which is just letting the process play out. And then if meaning and growth are going to happen, they'll happen on their own time. And this is very much related to another just fascinating piece of research that I profile in the book, which is in that three-month kind of pit that everyone experiences after really shitty big life negative changes it can feel like time slows down. And everyone talks about this, right? Like when you're having fun, time flies. And when things are really hard, time slows down. Neuroscientists speculate that the reason that's the case is because when we feel like we're under threat, when we're going through massive disorder, our brains, instead of viewing life like a continuous movie, they start to view it frame by frame. And the reason they're doing that is because they don't want to miss anything because we're under threat. We have to see every little snake that could be out to attack us. So our perception of time changes and it slows. And there's a fascinating experiment I talk about in the book where uh, the neuroscientist David Eagleman tested this by taking participants to this crazy ride in an amusement park 
where you basically sit on the equivalent of a mattress and just drop 150 to 200 feet. And he had the participants estimate how long the drop took, how long the fall took, both when they were on the ride and when they were watching it. Same drop, same amount of time. When they were watching other people on it, they nailed the estimate. When they were on it, they said it took three times longer than it actually did. And I just love it because it's such a beautiful metaphor for these enormous changes, which is like we're just kind of falling. Like the ground is nowhere to be found under us. And when that happens, time slows down. And there's nothing we can do to make it go faster. All we can do is take solace in knowing that like we just need to be patient. We need to honor whatever we're feeling, not worry about what's going to happen on the other side, just worry about showing up and getting to the other side. Hmm. And that kind of flies in the face of an entire self-help industry that's all about growth and gratitude and you know challenge response to stress. And I want to be clear, like I think for 97 to 98% of things, like that is the right attitude to have, and those are the right constructs. But for the really shitty changes, the real growth-oriented thing to do is just to release from all that altogether. Hmm. Yeah, the idea that like, it can just suck. <laughs> It's, it's great. You know, I love the, the, the part of the book where your therapist, Brooke, basically says that to you. She, you're like trying to make meaning out of something very difficult. And she's like, why are you making meaning out of it? It could just suck. I think that's great permission to have. And that threw me for such a loop too, because she said that and I'm like, oh my God, like I can't make, then like there's really no point to this. And I guess that was her point. And, mm-hmm. you know, once I allowed it to just suck, I ended up getting better. And then looking back on that experience, like, of course, there's tons of meaning, but that had to happen on its own time. I wasn't going to be able to force that. Yeah. For me, that was, I, that, I really appreciated you including that in the book because it did feel so um, anathema to so much of what is out there in, in, in self-help and self-betterment books, you know? Um, so I really appreciated that. So I found very surprising the behavioral activation part of how you have this great quote, uh, I wrote it down, you don't. You don't need to feel good to get going. You need to give yourself a chance at feeling good. Meaning like most people think I need to, and I'm, I think of this through a writing lens often, right? Like you think I need to be in the right headspace to write, but actually just sitting down and doing the writing gets you into the headspace. And so it's not that your actions follow your feelings. It's that you lead with actions and then your feelings can follow that. I think that's such an interesting idea. And that's that I found that to be super counterintuitive. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think like the, the leading neuroscience theory behind that is also really interesting, which is essentially that like when your brain's in stasis, when you're not feeling great, like when we think and when we plan thoughts, we get like little spurts of the neurochemical dopamine, which helps us feel better. But it's often no match for like the stagnation or the rut that we're in. But when we start taking action, the bolus of good neurochemicals that we get of dopamine is so great that it can like help the brain unlock from the rigidity. So it's almost like, you know, picture a brain at rigidity. I don't want to write. And then you can tell yourself, well, I just like got to drink this coffee. I just got to get motivated. I have to know what I'm going to write. And the brain's trying so hard. It's like little dopamine, little dopamine, little dopamine, but it's still locked in. Whereas if you just say, fuck it, I'm just going to start writing. You kind of like blast through the rigidity in your brain and you give yourself the chance of getting into a new mind space that might be characterized by more um, positive feelings and motivation. Yeah, that's so interesting. And, and yeah, it differs from what I think would be the typical way of thinking about that. For sure. Um, so 
to get a little bit into the process of how you write the write this book, because you brought up writing there. Uh, I know you mentioned to me, which I thought very interesting, um, not on this recording, but previously, that when you're writing a book like this, you said it's about three months of actually sitting down in the chair and writing. And it's about two years of outlining and thinking. And I believe you said physically and mentally wandering. So I'm imagining some hikes in there, a lot of days hitting your head against the wall. So how does this, I'm just so curious how this all comes together and how it even coalesces on like a chapter level. Like do you throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and then pull it together on a Trello board? How does that work for you? Ooh, yeah. Now let's talk about the process. I love this. Um, for those of you that don't want to go deep into the process, this is your permission to hit, <laughs> exit. You know, hit exit and um, go buy the book wherever you buy your books. But for those that want to do some inside baseball, we could go on for three hours. I know we won't. So here's my process. I don't even know what I'm going to work on, but my reading knows, like my subconscious knows what I'm going to work on. So looking back, it's like, of course, this was going to be my next book. I just look at my bookshelf and like, 40% of the books I'd read are all kind of circling around this topic from different angles. But at the time, I don't know it. So I'm just reading. I'm reading stuff that interests me. And it's starting to coalesce around a new way to think about change. And then I have the aha moment, which for this book was early pandemic, right off the bat. When's this going to get back to normal? When's this going to get back to normal? And me, me being like, this is so stupid. And I probably went into Google and wrote like, why do we think about getting back to normal with change? And then the number one of a theme in the search results was homeostasis. I'm like, all right, I've heard of that. Let's go into homeostasis. And then I go into that, and then I see, like, actually, there's this newer alternative model that the majority of the scientific community is onto, but no one else is. So I'm like, all right, boom, I think I've got my book idea. And then I say, well, I don't want to write a pandemic book. But then I look back at what I've been reading. I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been like really curious about sense of identity because I'm going through all these changes. What if I take getting back to normal in terms of the pandemic and start to think like, well, what does it mean for identity? I'm also really into excellence. So like you said, the difference between a Michael Jordan or a Tim Duncan, like my brain just starts going. So now I can broadly circle around an idea. And at the time, it wasn't even going to be change. It was going to be like, what does it mean to have a very strong and enduring sense of identity over time? And then that morphed into change. Because it had to, right? Because like life is change. So that process goes on for, I don't know, seven months. And then I say, like, I think I got the idea. So now it's just going through books, looking at all of my notes, trying to organize different concepts and tools into somewhat of a coherent narrative, going on a lot of long walks and doing it. Not formally reporting, but like starting to have conversations with people about this topic and about how it manifests in their life, so on and so forth. Um, eventually have enough to be able to write a book proposal that my agent can then take to a publisher and say, hey, like, is this book that you want Brad to write? And if so, how much will you pay for it? Um, then I keep getting more and more granular with the outline. And I get to a point where the outline is granular enough where I know the chapter titles, I know what I'm going to talk about, and I kind of even know the order. I know what studies I'm going to profile I know what pieces from different ancient wisdom traditions I'm going to talk about, and I know the stories I'm going to tell or the reporting I'm going to need to do. And that outline for this book was probably like 54 pages. So the outline itself was like 10,000 words, and the book is only 60,000 words or 62,000 words. So once I have that outline and I'm really confident in it, 
Then it shifts, and this is probably like, I don't know, yeah, about 18 months to two years in, to I need to write the book. And I was just having this conversation with Steve in a, a mutual friend of ours over text message who's like, you know, how do you guys write books? And Steve's very different. Steve, not surprising to our longtime listeners, is he just kind of shows up and whatever happens, happens. And somehow there's a book, you know, six, six months later after he quote unquote starts writing. I'm super methodical. So I don't like to work on a book for more than four months because when I'm working on a book, I am just all in to the book with any of my professional time. So I still have some other rooms, like I still go to the gym and train, I'm still you know, a somewhat present family member, although not as present as I am when I'm not writing a book. Um, but knowing that I'm going to get so immersed in it, like it can't go on for that long. It'll ruin my marriage if it goes on for that long. It's all I can think about. And I am convinced, and again, listeners know that um, I have actual clinical OCD, which has taken me to some terrible places. I'm convinced, though, it's the same kind of part of my brain that can loop on to the most intrusive thoughts and just dig and dig and dig and imagine the worst scenarios in a way that like debilitates me that can also like get so engrossed in an idea where I'm just living in the idea of the book. That's the headspace I get in. And I know, again, for my own mental health, for my relationships, I can only be in it for so long. So my goal is simply to write four days a week, a thousand words a day. That's the minimum. If more than a thousand words come out, great. If less than a thousand words come out, not great. Got to get to a thousand. And I write when I'm in book mode every afternoon for between two and four hours to get to that thousand words. And then the next morning, I edit whatever I wrote the day before. So it turns out to like about five hours of work, generally three and a half hours of writing, an hour and a half of editing. And you do the math, right? 60,000 divided by four, because I'm doing at least 4,000 words a week, it's 15 weeks. And then for this book, I got really hot with some chapters great. That expedites the process. It ends up taking about three months. Wow. That's great. I mean, it works for me and, and I'm very yeah. fortunate. Right? Like in part of it, you know, this is the first book, I guess ground in this too, but I'm a full-time writer. I coach two days a week. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm deep in book writing process, I'm sure my clients can like sense something's up based on my calendar. I actually kind of take away one coaching day. So I'm really only coaching one day a week. So I have these four days where I'm just writing. Yeah. And a thousand words isn't that much if you're comfortable with the first draft sucking. I mean, you know this. You've written cover stories. Like, once you have that outline, it's not hard to write a thousand words. It's hard to write a thousand good words, but that's why I never edit when I write. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the, those are two. I was the a thousand words a day. I mean, that's, that's a decent chunk. It's not 250 words. Um, but that's still amazing that you can write a book in three months or four months writing a thousand words a day. I think that's just like such for me yeah, and I'm a four, writer. Only, but, only four days a week. Yeah, exactly. It's, it really is that idea of like, you if you just lay one brick. It doesn't feel like it's a big deal, but you lay one brick and then you lay the second brick, then you lay the third brick. And all of a sudden you're like, Oh, building a house isn't that hard. <laughs> yeah. But there are such few surprises because once the outlines there, yeah, like the book's going to take me in, in in its own direction, but the topics that are in the outline are mainly the topics that are going to be there because I'm not researching and writing at the same time. Yeah, so the order might shift, or I might think, hey, I'm going to spend, you know, two thousand words on one story, and it turns out I actually spend three thousand words there. But the the real intellectual work is in the outline. It's almost like the creative work. I never thought of it like this. The creative work is the reading, the going on walks, the having those aha moments, the getting the chapter titles. The intellectual work is now that you've got this 
cool creative idea that you tell your wife about and she blinks out because she's like, you sound manic, this makes no sense. The intellectual work is making it make sense. And then the craft work is just turning it into words on a page. And those are three very distinct parts of my creative process. Yeah. Huh. Uh, well, thanks for letting us in on that. It's pretty, it's illuminating and it's interesting. Um, maybe we can wrap up with this, which is if you think of your book, I want you to think of your book as the March Madness, the college basketball March Madness tournament. Who is the bubble team that got snubbed? Like the 65th team that's like, damn it, we, like, we had a good case, but we couldn't quite make it into the field. I'm curious what idea or story or paper got like just got left on the cutting room floor, but was very close to being in. Yeah, it's not so much a got snubbed. It's a choice that I made. Um, and if anything, it would be like a one seed. But there is an individual who is a um, a very public figure that was too public for me to get in touch with. Um, but had this really extraordinary story of just overcoming unimaginable loss in their life and somehow getting through that unimaginable loss and had written about this and had been interviewed about this. So there were like a lot of um, secondary quotes from this person about how they got through it. And it was enough to use to tell their story. And in the Last draft before like the pages were locked in, this person's story was there. And I was just telling it through in their own words, but never having talked to the person. And it just, I couldn't do it. Like it felt like I, without having spoken to that person, because it was such an enormous tragedy about it, it doesn't matter if it, this is their own words. And I'm, I'm just literally taking quotes that they said and kind of inferring and making it fit. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to include it. I tried one last time to get through to this person through their agent, their manager, couldn't make it happen. So it just got cut. Mm. Um, I'm happy. I call that like kind of, I'm sure there's an official word for it. You could tell me, but there's like primary reporting when you go talk to someone, and you get your quote. And then I just call it secondary reporting, which is when someone is like on the record saying something four times. So like, you know, it's a thing that they think and they say, and you just take that quote to help you make a point. And I'm really comfortable doing secondary reporting because I view my job, like, I, unlike you, I am not a reporter first. I'm kind of like a writer and I, I, I use ideas and I'm really interested in the ideas. And then if I can report primary, great. But if something there is secondary, I'll take it. But this person's story just it involves so much loss that it felt a disservice to try to infer anything on this person's words without having spoken to them. And I couldn't get in touch with them. So I just cut that from the book. And what was the lesson or the upshot of the, like, it was about, I assume, change through grief, but I'm curious if there was, like, a... Yeah, change through grief in in the power of routine. Ah, okay. In just showing up, even when it feels imaginable, and, like, for this person, continuing to do their job, Mm. and just showing up and doing their job, even if it felt like the world was ending, showing up and doing their job. You know, as Anne Lamott would say, like, bird by bird stone by stone, sentence by sentence, jump shot by jump shot, whatever it is. And somehow you get to the other side. And you never really get to the other side with grief, but you get to a new place. And there's always some disorder, I think, in someone's heart when there's that kind of grief. But it reorders around the disorder. And this person just had these fascinating quotes on the importance of routine and ritual and like just showing up through this. Um. But I couldn't do it because I don't know where that person's at. You know, these quotes were a year old. Maybe they're melting down. And the last thing I want is my book to come out and like cause more pain or suffering. So 
for that, I realized that the bar has got to be primary reporting. And it's not enough that I gave them three chances to comment on what I'd written. Like, you know what? It's not worth it. Let's just not, let's just not include that. Well, Brad, this was, um, this is great. I always enjoy talking with you and, uh, love the book. Uh, highly, highly recommend people go and buy it or buy, uh, couple copies, as I mentioned, I read it twice. Um, uh, you know, part of that was because I was, I don't want to confuse people. You said paperback. Um, there are no paperbacks. Okay. Yes. For the general public. Clay got that <laughs> because you know, he's all fancy at GQ. Yes. So I'm not general. They're called advanced copies and it's the literary term for, um, they're actually really crappy books because it's basically a rough draft of the book that the media gets sent like six months in advance. Um, so you don't want the crappy copy. You want the hardcover copy anyways. <laughs> I know a little inside baseball thing is they always say like, you know, don't quote from this. And I feel like I've quoted a ton from uncorrected proofs, but like granted, I'm not like, inc- they're normally like, it's not like I'm including any errors or anything. And I, I mean, I guess I could have made a big mistake because something I included in a GQ story could get cut eventually, but, uh, the publishers though, they can't have their cake and eat it too. Like they want the story to come out, you know, the day the book comes out. So yeah. it's not like you have time to go back and like verify every quote, especially if it's a print story. Like they want it in that month's magazine. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Great book. Uh, so much Thanks, good stuff man. in here. And Thanks for doing this today. This is fun. I love doing this. I mean, I could have kept going, but I, I figured 115 is probably, as you said, a good spot. All right, listeners. Well, 115 is a good spot. We hope that y'all enjoyed today's podcast. Thanks to Clay for coming on, making the time to do this. Thanks for you all for um, being along this journey. And uh, yeah, if you haven't got the book, what are you waiting for? Now's the time. Hope you enjoy it. Let us know what you think. And uh, we'll be back with Steve next week. Steve next week.